Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon, here with my friend and Chavruta Yerdena Azban, our daf of the day, Masachet Kutubot, daf Samachet, page 68. We have a new mission on this daf, but before then, uh, we have a reference to a very famous Mishnah in Peya that talks about, well, let me take a step back. The In Peya, Peya is a, one of the Masachot that doesn't have Bavli Gemara, right? It only has Yerushalmi Gemara. It's really... We learn it mostly as Mishnah. It's talking about, you know, leaving the corners of your field for, for charity. So in the discussion of charity, it makes sense that Peah would show up because that's really the essence of that kind of mitzvah. So there are famous, there's a very famous Mishnah in Peah that talks about um, all the gemilut chasadim that we do, all of these, like the righteous deeds that we do in terms of visiting the sick and, and, and so on. And usually that concludes with Torah Kuneged Kulam, which is, that the Torah study is, you know, equivalent or greater than all of them. And it's, um, that is not a, a chesed, not a kindness in that way. This Mishnah in Peya that is cited here is truly talking about tzedakah. Tanan hatam, ein machayvinoto limkor et beito et klei tashmisho. So the question is, the question that the mission is discussing is who really gets to get, is entitled to receive the charity, right? So that the question is, you know, how much money do you have and if you have less than that, then we're going to say, okay, you are now in the running. So the question is, how far does somebody who is now going to be, you know, we're paying attention to a person's estate, right? How much do we require one to um, divest themselves of their possessions to make sure that they are now eligible for charity? So the Mishnah there says, we don't obligate a person to sell his house and all of his stuff in order to get to that minimum or really the maximum that you could own and then be eligible for charity, may, namely those, it's the, the limit, limit, as we understand it, is 200 dinar. So if you have a house, if you own a house, but you don't have 200 dinar, you don't have to sell your house to get to your 200 dinar. Now, uh, you know, we have to be reasonable here. I'm not saying, I don't know what the, the sages would have said if somebody owns a mansion but doesn't have 200 dinar in their bank account. But the point is, you don't have to go homeless for the sake of proving that you need charity. Below, and the Gemara says, "Wait, do we? Don't we? Don't we insist that he's going to sell his property?" Vatanya, hayai mishtamesh b'klei zahav, yishtamesh b'klei kesef, b'klei kesef, yishtamesh b'klei nechoshet. And this is the point that I've raised already, right? This idea that somebody who might in fact have wealth, somebody who's accustomed to using gold, so let them use silver, and somebody who's accustomed to using silver, let that person use copper. Meaning, maybe you do have to sell your possessions to kind of downgrade. I'm a Rav Zvid, lo kashya. Rav Zvid said, no, this is not a difficulty. This is not a real contradiction. Ha b'mita v'shulchan, ha b'kosod v'uka'ara. He said, we're talking about different kinds of things. When you're talking about the level, let's say, of a bed and a table versus the cups and the plates. This seems to be like, to some extent, it seems sounds at first blush like an artificial distinction, right? They're all, as far as I'm concerned, they might all be housewares, right? Maishna kosod v'uka'ara. So the guy says, well, really, what is the difference between the cups and the plates that he doesn't have to sell them? And the the answer is because he would say, the, the person who has to downgrade might say, they are gross to me. They are icky, disgusting. I cannot eat them with them. And so the guy says, well, why wouldn't you also have that same issue with a bed or a table where you say like, this is, 
This is not comfortable. This is no good. It, it's disturbing to me. It's icky. So Rava, the son of Rabba, said there's no difference, meaning there's no, he doesn't have to sell the furnishings either, meaning the same way that we're talking about um, in selling his house, right, and selling his basic uh, utensils, he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to impoverish himself further to be eligible for tzedakah. The original case where he's talking about, yes, he does go sell the gold for the silver, the silver, the bronze. It's talking about a silver comb on the table. It's a decorative item. It's a novelty item. It's a luxury indulgence. And so, yeah, if you've got those, go ahead. Yeah, sell those. Uh, but don't. But we're not talking about just the basics of living. Rav Papa Amar Lokasha Kan Kodam Shiavoli De Gibui Kan Lachar Shiavoli De Gibui. Rav Papa has a different way of resolving the need not to sell his property. He says this is not difficult. Because we're talking about, um, we're coming, we're talking about, do you have to sell your your stuff prior to the point of getting tzedakah? Meaning, as you have a downgrade in 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 an, your economic situation is is lesser, yeah, maybe you do sell your stuff, but you're not at that level where if you don't, if you you're at the point of collecting charity, whether or not you sell this item, right? So you sell the item. Sure, that'll stave off collecting charity for what? A day, a week, whatever it is, right? It's not the same kind of thing of um, having luxury items that you're... Well, Papa doesn't talk about luxury items, but he does make the distinction that, you know, you get to the point that you're talking about tzedakah, about being the beneficiary of tzedakah, then you don't have to go sell your items that might put you over the edge to not have you worry about that. So that's, I think... Uh, I think it's a, a valuable element to the treatment of tzedakah within the literature of Chazal. Um, you know, the question to how poor do you have to be to really be eligible for a charity? And the answer is, in fact, you actually have to be quite poor, but we also don't require you to impoverish, impoverish yourself even further kind of to prove that, to prove that you really have nothing and that you now can receive tzedakah. Uh, Yardina, before I go into the Mishnah, you have any words? Look, I, I think this describes, you know, we see these in modern times also, right? I Probably the biggest thing we see is like, let's say with day school scholarship, you know, what does it mean to need? How do you need to live to need assistance? Um, I think it's interesting also that the Gemara makes a distinction between like cash versus valuables. Like these are all things that we're still talking about, which basically on a depressing level tells you there's there are problems that are never going to be solved well but on a comforting level tells you these are things societies and communities have always struggled with right well said okay i'm going to pick up here with the mishnah which brings us back to ketubot of course um so we have here a girl whose father has died. She is a minor. She is underage. And her mother or her brothers marry her off. Even if she agrees to it, right? Um, and they marry her off, she's supposed to have the rights to what we'll call it a proper dowry, right? But they give they marry her off with a lesser dowry so that they write her 100 dinar or 50 dinar. So the, the position here of the mission is that when she gets to be the age of majority, meaning when she reaches, I don't know, I guess that's 12, right? Um, she can then 
turn back to her mother or her brothers or their estates, right, and say, you owe me the amount of a proper dowry, which the claim that I've seen in the commentaries is that that's going to be like a tenth of the family's estate, meaning even if as a kid she kind of signed that away or was willing to give up on it, she can come back and collect it as an adult. It's not a permanent signing away. I suppose that recognizes that, you know, kids are under the influence of their family members and might not make the most wise decision for themselves going forward. Rebuda says that if, a fa- if the father was alive to marry off the first daughter, then the second daughter should get the same kind of dowry that the father knowingly gave the first daughter, meaning knowingly he was alive. He did it. That's you can presume or this this Rabbi Yehuda's position suggests that you can presume that the father would have done the same for each daughter. There are times that a person is less wealthy and becomes more wealthy. I mean, the language here is really poor, right? Somebody could become could be poor and get wealthy or someone could be wealthy and get poor so that this claim of do the same for the next daughter is maybe a, a tricky proposition. So the mission says rather what the court should do is assess the property and give her what's a, a suitable percentage, you know, from the, from the sum total. Um, I think it's an interesting reflection of the idea that, you know, if you have a, a family where the father has died and the mother and the brothers are going to marry off their their sister or daughter, right? That the idea that they might uh, kind of cut her, give her a lesser dowry suggests that, that the money is not there. Um, if the money is there, then it seems like a little bit of a Cinderella type of situation, right? Where you're going to like, I don't know, try to get rid of her, get her out of the house. She's, you're going to marry her off. You're going to give her less than she needs to really move forward with her life. It, it seems that either the whole family is in trouble or Nebuch, this poor girl, is in trouble. And I really like this halacha, that she can come back and claim it, which makes the the Cinderella suggestion, right, like kind of reduces that um, travail in her life, right? She, she can come back and make good on it. The court can then, you know, require it to take, to, to dun the family for the money that they owe her. Yeah, look, I think this mission on the top is a very interesting top because it really is going to talk about sort of like what's owed uh, to girls and women who are unfortunately in sort of unusual or less than ideal um, circumstances. So I'm going to continue on from there. And there's two halakhot basically uh, that uh, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi is going to uh, is going to share. Um, but before we get to that. Uh, there's just one thing I want to point out that I find to be very, very interesting, which is uh, this discussion about where it says, right? right? That sometimes a person is poor and becomes wealthy and sometimes is wealthy and becomes poor, right? And so the Gemara wants to sort of understand like what this means. And they go on and say, Ashir, Ashir Bidat. So I saw this, right? That it's like you're poor in mindset or you're wealthy in mindset. And I was like, this sounds so modern, right? Like, couldn't you see like a book called like uh, The Poor Mind, Wealthy Poor Mindset? Like, I could just see this being like a, you know, a financial advisory um, uh, book. And so what it basically is talking about is 
is, you know, is Vic Tani, right? The, the Mishnah is basically teaching us, right? That when, uh, when it tells us that the court appraises the property and then gives her a dowry, okay? Right? That uh, we don't, the father, you know, basically we don't follow the assessment of the father's intention, but we give a fixed son a sum, and this is a reputation of what Shmuel had to say, which is not the piece I'm going to get into. I'm more interested in this idea of how they define this of sort of like a poor mindset versus a rich mindset. And basically what the Mepharshim explained is, is that a poor mindset is somebody who spends money like they're poor, and a rich mindset is somebody who spends money like they're rich. And so That's a big like, pitfall. I, yeah, exactly. Like, it's not, but I think it's so interesting. Like, it's not like, in a way, we've always been talking about, particularly in Yavamos and Ketubos, there seems to be something, like, very not emotional and about, you know, how the Gemara treats those scenarios. And here, this is, like, such an insightful, you know, uh, comment about money and our relationship with money, right? You can be a rich person, but you still treat money like you're a poor person. I, I know I spoke about Warren Buffett a couple episodes ago, but, like, uh, you know, again, like he apparently lives in the same house that he always ha- already always had. Right. That's living with like a poor mindset. Um, and then we know people, you know, who live with a wealthy mindset, who live way above their means because they just like. And live a particular way. So I, I just I love this particular comment of the Gemara. It's really a potentially dangerous kind of thing. Right. Mela, if you are wealthy and you live poor, fine, do whatever you want. But if you're poor and you live wealthy, you know, speaking as one who might, for example, I might like to live in a much, much more, um, uh, you know, luxuriant household than I do. Specifically, I have a desire for outdoor space that my apartment does not have. And it's not so simple. I can't just decide, oh, I'm going to up and move there because if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. Not to use myself as too much of an example, but living high on the hog, and maybe it's not the right kind of example because real estate is always a complicated you know, proposition, but living high on the hog when you don't have the funds is not wise. Is not wise, exactly. All right, and then I'm just, I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, just to wrap up soon, but Rabbi Huda Nasi, we have like two scenarios here. One, which is on the bom- bottom of Ahmed Aleph, which is Gufa Amar Rabbi, Right, that the daughter who's basically sustained, an orphan daughter sustained from the inheritance by, that her brothers have, she gets 110. And then they ask this question, right? what do you do if somebody has 10 daughters and a son, right? or the son uh, does not have anything because there are daughters because each daughter is going to get a tenth of the estate. And so like, I actually don't think these are like fantastical scenarios. I think these were real scenarios, right? Like on the one hand, it's very easy to say, oh, the estate has to give the dowry and support these orphan daughters. But on the other hand, the son is also entitled to his inheritance. And how do you sort of, you know, balance those things? And so they go through a whole discussion about what happens if they all get married, you know, sequentially. What if they all get married at the same, uh, you know, if they, if they get married at the same time? And then after that, they bring a brisa uh, that talks about right. Let's say you have daughters, right? Whether they mature and they mature, the question is: once they're a bogeret, do they basically lose their entitlement to be sustained 
by the estate uh, by the estate itself. And so it says, right, Again, we have a statement from Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, which is they lose their sustenance, but they don't lose their entitlement to their dowry, right? Um, and again, they get into a lengthy discussion for the rest of the Amud about what exactly um, does that mean and how exactly um, does that work. But I, you know, I, I appreciate that, uh, you know, the, the, the Gemara really wants to sort of think about like all of these different potential, um, you know, potential scenarios and like, how does an orphan really, you know, claim their right for their dowry? Uh, what do you do if there isn't enough inheritance to go around? How to not get part of it? Can she protest it? I mean, this is kind of what the Gemara is going to go through. It's a little bit too long to read, but I just want, you know, uh, uh, us as our learners uh, to pay attention to, um, you know, sort of this type of uh, uh, this type of discussion, which I think, again, I don't think was like, I don't think these are boundary pushing discussions. I actually think these were probably uh, very, very, uh, you know, th these were actually very practical. Um, and again, um, you know, at the bottom, there's one where there's a lot of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi on this page, which I just found to be uh, very, very interesting, right? We have this statement of Rav Huna, right? I'm a Rav Huna, I'm a Rabbi. Again, Rav Huna says the name of Rabbi, Parnasa ena Tupa, right? Support is not treated like a Tanai, like a stipulation in the marriage context. My ena Tanai Tupa, right? So then the Gemara wants to understand what it means. Right. Whereas we say support, she can seize her death even from lean property that was sold, but with the stipulation in a marriage contract, she can't seize her debt. Okay. And then it says, My Kamash Malan, what is it coming to teach us? Right. Right. Incidents that occur daily right, are basically things that the court can appropriate money from for lien property, basically for paying for her support, but not appropriate for sustenance, right? So that's, so the question is like, why did he have to teach the distinction? Okay, and so then they're gonna get into discussion about why he did. But again, it's very interesting to see that we have sort of these three statements of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. They're all very, very practically driven. Um, and again, I, I, I don't think, these are not boundary pushing scenarios. I think these were very intricate estate laws, right? People did not live the way that they do now. I think early death was very common. Um, and how you supported your daughters, right? And how you made sure that they could get a good marriage, especially when women did not have the economic power they have now, was a real question and a real worry that Halacha really had to deal with. And we see that in the statement of, you know, I didn't deep dive into them at all. I really did a more broader outline, but I just wanted us to see what Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi does here. I think, you know, so often we talk about how there are issues in the Talmud that are not so germane to nowadays because they were living in a different kind of society and so on. And I think you've said it already on this episode, Yerdin, I think you made the point very well that, you know, some of these issues are really kind of eternal. Yes, 100%. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, review us on all major podcasts. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this step on our Talking Time on Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.